Welcome to the Back Room of Politics, uh, where we have uh, a discussion today on the very important human right of housing. It is one of the most basic things that uh, we all seek. And in New Zealand, for decades, the expectation has been that home ownership was within the grasp of anybody who set out to achieve that. The rule of thumb used to be, for many, many years, decades even, that housing would cost about three times, or a new house would cost about three times uh, your annual salary. That, in recent times, has slipped way out to now more than 10 times the average salary in New Zealand. Uh, And that is a huge problem and a huge barrier for people. Some of that uh, is caused by uh, just the uh, rampant inflation that you get when there is a shortage of anything, Uh, but then other parts of it are caused by all of the inputs that go into it. Uh, The current government, we're going to solve all of this uh, by uh, building 100,000 Kiwi-built houses. Uh, We all know how that promise uh, all fell to bits. So beyond uh, the current Homestart grant, and the remnants of Kiwi Build, which is uh, very much a remnant, I might say. What should a government do? I'm joined today uh, by my colleague, uh, Nicola Willis, our housing spokesman, who's done a lot of work on this. Uh, and you'll have heard in other podcasts a uh, whole lot of input that she'll be using in her uh, developing of the policy that the National Party might go out with in the future. Nicola, welcome to the back room of politics. Good morning, Jerry. Great to be here. Can you tell us roughly what you see the problem being at the moment? Well, the problem is that we have a shortage of homes. That's obvious. That's allowed uh, massive house price inflation to occur. And it's meant that thousands of New Zealanders literally don't have somewhere to live. So we have to break that that problem down. Why do we have a shortage of homes? What's driving the massive cost of a home in New Zealand relative to the rest of the world, where actually land is scarcer, but homes are more affordable? And when you look at the cost of a new home, the major component, the biggest expense item, is land. And so we have to look at that and we have to ask ourselves, why aren't land prices more competitive in New Zealand? And I've read a lot on the subject, and whether you look at the OECD's analysis, the Productivity Commission, the Treasury, over many years, they all point to the fact that New Zealand has incredibly restrictive planning laws born of the Resource Management Act that have artificially constrained where people can build a house in New Zealand. They've tied it up in red tape, tied it up in cost, and it's made it too hard for people to find places to either put a granny flat on the one hand put an apartment on the other hand, or build a new subdivision on the other. So that's the problem we really need to get at. And as part of that problem, uh, that councils uh, who have the overarching responsibility for uh, resource management uh, in New Zealand, whether they're environmental councils or district councils, um, don't want to offend people in their own patch. So we've seen all that trouble that uh, occurred in Auckland, and we've got the same thing going on down in Christchurch, where uh, intensification on brownfields, that's... uh, sites that have had a building on them or have a building on them and still got some space uh, is uh, very much uh, criticised by a lot of people. Uh, What those same people don't recognise is that the product that's put on those uh, sites sells. Other people want them. Well, that's absolutely right. So councils, in short, have got very good at finding reasons to say no to new housing development, uh, and they aren't as good at finding reasons to say yes. And that plays out in two major ways, as I've observed. 
The first is councils are very reluctant to zone land for housing that currently doesn't have infrastructure connected to it, whether it's on the outskirt of a city or it's an area uh, that's previously not been very developed. They're reluctant to put in the pipes. They're reluctant uh, to help out with that, and that's constrained development on the margin of cities. The other side of it is actually a product, uh, to be fair to councils, born of the RMA, where we let everyone and their uncle tell us why they don't want a development to happen next door and we're not so good at saying well actually overall for the good of the city we need more housing. Equally the other thing councils do that they should bear uh, some responsibility and blame for is they often tie up the housing consenting process and all sorts of requirements about heights and recession planes even where the door is placed in relation to the street. That makes it hard for a developer who's just wanting to get on and build houses at scale and pace. Yeah, look, I, I actually, interestingly, was cleaning out the garage the other day and I found the um, original plans for my parents' house, which was built many, many decades ago. I'm not going to say how many, that would be unfair on myself, but um, <laughs> essentially it was a series of white lines on a uh, on two sheets of blue paper, so kind of blueprint things. Uh, they were elevations, they were plans, uh, and very minimal detail with a reference to New Zealand standards for uh, housing construction. And it seems to me that there was an awful lot of trust in the uh, system then that doesn't exist now. Uh, and I wonder how we even get over that because if you look at the uh, material you have to supply for a new consent, new building uh, consent these days, it's just phenomenal. But look, you, you mentioned two things there that I think are worth uh, thinking about, uh, talking a bit more about. So one was the reluctance of council to um, get the pipes up to an area that could be developed for residential uh, occupation. You know, the, the, the interesting thing is that if someone develops a subdivision, they have to have that fully built, as it were, fully uh, subdivided, fully um, surveyed, the roads formed, uh, the footpaths formed, all of the infrastructure put in to that connection point. So the council don't pay for that uh, that stuff. They only play up to the connection. And I think sometimes they lose the uh, uh, side of the fact they're getting a massive rating base coming in off those sections once they're sold and occupied. Mm, that, that's right. And so there should be a view that there's an upside to development because it brings future ratepayers to an area. But the councils, to be fair to them, are also constrained by the fact that if they want to rezone that subdivision for housing, they need to go through a plan change process. When they change the plans about where housing is allowed in their district, uh, that is open to appeals, that is open to input from the community, and that can draw out for months and years. Uh, and we've seen that. Uh, but we've also seen what happens when you turn that on its head. And your area, Canterbury, is a great example of that. We're following the earthquakes. The uh, key-led government, together with you, made that decision to say, well, let's cut through all of those appeal processes, all of that delay, and let's empower the council uh, to quickly change the plans and allow new housing to spring up. And it worked. We saw that resource consents took off. We saw that the ratio of house prices to income came down, whereas across the rest of the country, it continued to accelerate ahead. I think, in short, what it tells us is if we make it easy to zone for more housing, if we simplify it, uh, then we can get on and get a lot more houses built more quickly. Yeah, we, we were kind of lucky because the three councils down there, Waimakariri, uh, Selwyn and Christchurch, had for, I think, around 15 years been working on a thing called the Urban Development Strategy 
strategy, which was going to set out where new housing could go. Uh, and uh, it was in the Environment Court at the time. Uh, and it was expected that uh, it might take another two or three years before, uh, if it was going at pace, uh, to be any results. So we just said, can't wait. Sorry. And we did consent it under earthquake legislation. It created 48,000, uh, opportunity for 48,000 residential sections with very good effect. But that's running out down there now, mm. as it is all around the country. Mm. So, look, I, I want to come back to the uh, some of the financing aspects of housing uh, shortly, but everything you're saying seems to point to need, uh, the need for some pretty significant changes to planning laws. Mm. I think that is absolutely what's needed. I'd like to see a reversal. The current situation is basically we'll decide whether or not you get permission. You can apply and we'll tell you whether you get it. Well, I'd like to flip it to you have a right to develop within some parameters. So to ultimately cut the number of circumstances in which people need a resource consent at all to build. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have to meet safety standards, you shouldn't be having to build to certain quality. That's all dealt with through your building consent. But when it comes to that resource consent, your right to build, I would like to see you having to use the consent in a lot fewer circumstances. The classic example is the one that's brought to my desk at least once a fortnight by someone locally who says, look, I've got a big garden out the back. Uh, I've also got uh, a child who would like to stay living at home for a while. I want to put a granny flat on the back section. But I've just gone and looked at what that will take from a consenting perspective. The cost is in the tens of thousands of dollars. The delay could be months. I can't be bothered with it. And actually, we need to encourage people to put on those sorts of additional dwellings, whether it's a granny flat or an expansion. The other typical one is developers who I sit down with who say, look, there is huge amounts of demand in Wellington City for small, low-maintenance townhouses that people can live in close to the city uh, and that they can afford to buy. So what we'd like to do is bowl down some of these old big family homes that are a bit ramshackle uh, and replace them with two or three townhouses. We're willing to do that, but the consenting process will take longer than the building process. That's just wrong and we need to flip that on its head. We also need to make it much easier uh, for a council to designate new areas for housing without having to be caught up in delay. So, look, it's it's very tempting to sort of see all of this through a political lens and uh, to some extent it has to be because of the legislation that's involved. Uh, but I mean a lens that sort of is saying, well, uh, we can get it right, you got it wrong. Uh, where's the, the grounds for some cooperation around this stuff so we do get some go forward? Because I tell you what, young people uh, will be feeling quite a degree of despair at having to sort of accumulate, you know, one hundred and fifty to 170000 to afford even a basic deposit of 10% on a house these days. Absolutely. And there is real despair out there. I talk to young people often who've completely given up on the home ownership dream. And these are people who uh, have worked hard, who've studied hard, who've got good jobs, who are saving, but it just seems unreachable. We have to bring that back. And I acknowledge, uh, and I actually think many of our MPs acknowledge, that New Zealand's housing challenges, our housing shortage, has built up over successive governments. It's not something uh, that belongs simply 
directly to one government. But the question is, how do we fix it? And I would argue uh, that uh, National actually had some uh, very good intent in this area. We said for many years, look, we need to fix the Resource Management Act. That's at the core of these issues. Uh, But we couldn't get support from Labor. We couldn't even get support from United Future to make those changes in government. We're now in a situation where there's a majority Labor government who've said that they want to bin the RMA and start again. Good on them. Uh, National's actually supporting them in that mission. Uh, But that's not going to come soon enough. That change won't even start to have an effect till 2024 at the earliest. So what can we do in the meantime? Judith Collins, the leader of the National Party, wrote to the Prime Minister and said, you've got a problem on your hands, you've got a housing crisis, and actually National wants to help. We will work with you to develop bipartisan reforms to urgently change the RMA so that we can get uh, this rezoning for housing happening. Come back now, though, to uh, the average house price in New Zealand now. It's got way up close to 800000 I think, which mm. is... Well, depending on your amount. numbers, you know, there are numbers that put it in a million, depending on which data set you use. Well, I'm sure if you if you live in other parts, some parts of the country, that that will be the, the case. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, you look at that uh, Trade Me website that's got you know property on it, um, and you can pick any property that's up for sale and uh, dive into it. And there'll be a little box there that says estimates nearby. And when you hit that, um, it is actually staggering some mm. of the prices that are around. Now they're just estimates, and I do actually worry that that uh, system chases a price because it gives you a high and a low, and uh, strikes the middle. Well, that seems to me like a, an auction that's happening without people knowing they're participating in it. But leave that aside, uh, I don't think we're going to see a huge turn back in house price. Too much has uh, now been uh, invested by people who've really put them, their head in a noose um, and uh, it, to to go back into some kind of negative equity, I think, is an unlikely thing. But price constraint has to be a factor in here, and also then some tools for how do you, how do young people, particularly, accumulate those large deposits, um, and uh, um, what what is, the, what is the flexibility for uh, government uh, through a legislative process to assist with that? Mm. Well, I'm going to answer that question, but I first want to suggest that next time you're on Trade Me and you're looking at what you can get for a million bucks in New Zealand, then do the painful exercise of going to a real estate site in Houston, Texas, any real estate site, and see what you can get for a million dollars there. Because I tell you what, people in Houston get paid a lot more than people in Auckland, and the house you can get for a million dollars is a mansion. It probably involves a swimming pool, multiple living rooms, and a landscape garden. So something is pretty out of whack. In yeah, Pizza, so. Anyway. Well, <laughs> so, so what can we do about it? Well, the first thing I think is that we can reduce the cost of bringing a new home to market. As I've said, the major driver of that cost is land. If we get more competitive land markets, where there are more options for where a developer can build a house, that will bring some healthy uh, dynamics into the market. And we should also be looking across the supply chain at all the other costs uh, that are part of building a house. And you've had others on your podcast, Catherine Marshall and others, talk about what those components are. So we should be putting real pressure on that. But regardless, I think we still need to build products to help your first home buyers get to that first rung on the property ladder. Because as it is, it's really tough 
to get in. Once people are in, they're okay, but getting in is very tough. So national and government uh, developed the Home Start product, which allows people to connect their KiwiSaver savings uh, with a grant from the government uh, and then purchase a home with that towards their deposit. The challenge in the past couple of years has been that the government puts very stringent price caps on how expensive a home you can buy with that grant package. Go into how that works, because we hear all these things, but for a practical application, if you you have someone here right now who Mm. is... uh, Saying, look, I'm a first home buyer. I've got a Kiwi Saver that's got, um, let's say, fifteen thousand dollars in it mm-hmm. after a, a long number of years' of work. Um, uh, I've got a you know small amount of other savings, and I want to buy a house. Yeah. So what you can do is you can get the right to withdraw that Kiwi Saver uh, saving you have because it's for a first house purchase. You can add it to any other savings you have, and then you can apply for a government grant. Uh, to be added to that, and you can bundle all of that together into your deposit for a first home. How big's the grant? $10,000 per person. person. If you're a couple, obviously you can access more, and typically that's what we see. You'll see a couple who will uh, access both of their KiwiSaver savings and they will each uh, get the grant, uh, and they will add that together. Uh, Then the next step is that you have to look for properties that are in Uh, And you don't get access to that money until you actually purchase a property. Uh, Let me be very clear about that. But you can work out about how much you're eligible for. Then you need to look at what the government mandated caps are for house prices. So just to be clear, Mm. you don't get that uh, $10,000 a head if you're buying something over the price cap. No, if you wanted to go and buy a million dollar house right now and you're a first home buyer, you're not allowed to access the government grant. You're not allowed to... uh, you're not allowed to get that extra money. You can withdraw your KiwiSaver. That's fine. That's on you. It's for your first-time purchase, but you won't be able to access the government uh, grant. You can only access the government grant if you're purchasing a property that is below the government price cap. The government has set the price caps. It says, it, and this is complicated, but at what is the bottom quartile of the market. Uh, in practice, what that means is I very regularly have want to be first home buyers contact me and say, Nicola, there is literally only one apartment in all of Wellington that is within the price cap. Uh, we need to, uh, so we need to um, lift those price caps. And the government acknowledges that this is an issue because we've seen a reduction in the number of people who are able to access the grant because they simply can't find a property that's a low enough price. So that's a Let's get out of the abstract and, and go mm-hmm. a little practical if we can. Mm. So um, the deposit that's required is 10% uh, to, for the home start grant. Uh, well, yes, there are government packages which will allow you to have a smaller deposit. In some instances, you'll get, um, you will get a government guarantee in some circumstances that will allow you to have a lower deposit, but that depends on your individual financial circumstances. So there's and, no and guarantee there's a, on there's that. There's a real catch-22 in here because if you look at it, if I do rough numbers, um, let's say someone did have 15000 in their KiwiSaver and they'd managed over and above that to save $10,000. Yeah, we give them 25. If they pick up their 10 from the government, it gives them 35. Uh, now, 10%, you're not, no one's going to buy a house for $350,000 in any city or large town in New Zealand uh, for $350,000. No. And if it's in a 5% deposit, it's a $700,000 property. That's outside the cap, mm. so that doesn't qualify. Mm. And even if you could, 
the gap and the cost of mortgage is not going to let you do it. Mm. So we've got all these uh, things. It's like cards on a table or a big jigsaw um, with with a whole heap of pieces missing. Mm. You just know it's never going to come together. Well, it's really tough. And the other reality is to save that amount in your KiwiSaver, you will have been working for many years. So what we're seeing is that people are delaying being able to buy a house for a lot longer than has historically been the case. And it does impact on people's decisions about their future, about where they live, about whether they start a family, uh, all sorts of things are being impacted by the fact that people can no longer reasonably expect that on an average wage they'll be able to save for a home. So it's a massive issue uh, and it I think requires multiple solutions uh, over a sustained period of time. But yeah. I would also like to see, uh, and certainly it's something that National is working on and talking to people about which is how can we create a better package for first-time buyers so more people can have that realistic aspiration of buying their own home? Yeah, look, it's, it's um, absolutely needed because we know that in the next short while, borrowing the government's done, whether it's necessary or not, COVID-19's made a whole lot of differences, but there's been a lot of borrowing. Ultimately, that will reflect in interest rates um, as the rest of the world sort of moves ahead uh, and we have to move to some extent. With that, um, there is almost certainly going to be a, a higher degree of pressure on interest rates. So that the low interest rates we've had just now aren't going to uh, stick around forever. Um, and look, just talking about this stuff, I mean, I remember when I first bought a house, the interest rate was 21%, um, which was astronomical. So yeah, sure, you could look at it and say, uh, well, I'm buying a house that's roughly three times my annual salary and cost. Uh, but then you knew that over the next five years you're going to pay that out again, mm. just an in interest. So things are in a better shape now, and I hope we never go back to those sort of uh, levels, let alone uh, you know even 10 or 12%, very, mm. very high. Mm. So hopefully we'll stick around, as I think Brad Olson said in, in the an earlier podcast, around the maximum up to around 6%, which um, is still a lot. Mm. And it changes the, the economics for people to make it even worse. So we do have to do something. Um, what do you think the uh, prospects are for um, some changes to the, um, I, don't, I don't want to say the standards of, of, uh, of housing, mm. uh, but if you think about something that was built, say, in the 1980s in New Zealand, the, um, in fact, it wasn't until 1978 that you had to insulate houses in New Zealand. So the quality of house built back then was substantially less than now. Do you think there's any over-engineering gone in that... Um, uh, is adding to to house costs at the moment? Well, when I talk to builders and those who are really involved with housing construction about this, they say, look, there's a couple of things. The first is it's a good thing that homes now are generally designed with better insulation and weatherproofing standards. That's that's positive. But there is a question about how much compliance we have along the way towards those goals, uh, that the compliance doesn't actually always deliver the quality result uh, that we're seeking. So one good example of that is we have the Healthy Homes Regulations, which require standards of heating and insulation. Well, uh, listeners might be interested to hear that those standards are completely different from the Building Act standards. 
which is silly because if you're developing a home, what that means is you need to first work out whether you've met the building standard, then work out whether you've met the healthy home standard and somehow work out the formula between the two uh, when you go about your construction. You then need to submit to a number of compliance checks, not only for your building consent and to get your certificates of compliance, but also to ensure that you're meeting the healthy home standards. So we have layers and layers of checks and bureaucracy, and I'm not convinced they always add up to a better home. No, look, that circumstance is a complete disgrace, and I can't understand how ministers have been so asleep at the wheel around this stuff. I understand, too, that if you build a house with uh, window space uh, of a required uh, amount for quite relative to the floor space, um, that will be too big to meet the standard for the healthy home stuff, which is a massive calculation. And I can remember uh, on the uh, Regulation Review Committee asking the um, MB officials to come in and demonstrate for us how you'd apply the formula. They couldn't do it. Yeah. And you're thinking, well, hang on, people are going to get panged on this. Yeah. Um, it's just, just outrageous. Well, I, I came across a, um, a revelation on that. I uh, was reading advice that the Minister had received about the Healthy Homes Regulations, and um, there was a mention of the fact that officials were looking uh, at a change to the healthy home heating standard because of problems they had discovered with that standard during implementation. Now, you just sit back and consider you're a landlord and you've just invested a significant amount of money in heat pumps and meeting the healthy home standards, or you're about to do that next week. Uh, but officials, meanwhile, gently in the background over a matter of months have decided that it's not actually the right standard and they might be changing it at some point in the future. It's just wrong. Yeah, that's right. Look, while we're on about uh, healthy homes and the uh, healthy home standard, home heat standards, they apply largely to rentals. But that market's about to take a hit as well, in my opinion, because you've got over the last uh, couple of years as, as young people um, and others trying to save for their own home, perhaps, and that sort of impossible mission we spoke of before, have faced rental increases on average of $120 a week, mm. uh, which is a huge amount when mm. you think about it, another five, nearly $6,000 a year mm. that you've got to pay uh, just in rentals. Um, one of the things that happens in about uh, on the 1st of October uh, it, it, from the 1st of October is the inability of landlords to uh, write interest costs against the income from the property. Mm. And if you think about it, what other business operates like that? Where do you, where are you denied the right to claim your expenses against your profit? Mm. Uh, it doesn't exist. So what you're going to see, in my opinion, is inevitably pressure on rents. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what the government was warned by their official advisors when they started dreaming up this policy. They were warned of two major uh, impacts. The first was what you're going to see is some landlords just pass on their increased cost to their tenants through higher rents. Second, what you may see some landlords do is say, actually, this whole landlord business has got too hard for me. It's too expensive. I'm going to leave altogether. And actually, that's pretty devastating for a large group of tenants because what that means is the landlord sells their property uh, and the individual needs to move out. Uh, now, there'll, there'll be another landlord there next week who maybe, maybe uh, charges higher rent, but many tenants will be churned out of the system. And officials explicitly warned ministers that they see this will disproportionately fall on those with lower incomes and that we are likely to see an increase in people who require a state home, who end up on the 24,000 strong waiting list, 
and potentially more families having to live in motel rooms. So this is just cutting off your nose to spite your face stuff. Well, it's also shifting uh, a, a massive cost back onto uh, the, the broader tax base. I, mm. I can't understand their, their thinking. Mm. And I, I, it, you're right to say that they were warned against it. The analytics did not support this sort of policy uh, for all of the reasons we've just spoken of. Um, so what do you think will happen? We don't even know at this stage uh, what the, how that is going to be uh, implemented, how it's going to be applied. Mm. What would you expect? Well, I, I'm really worried that we're actually already seeing that it's putting people off investing in potential rental properties. The really good example of that is the uh, build to rent idea. Now, this is something that uh, you had Leonie Freeman from the Property Council talk to you on an earlier podcast about, which is that there are people who are willing to invest in housing that is specifically there for long-term rental, but they're looking at the new tax rules saying, well, it doesn't add up if that if we are hit by these new tax rules. And what the IRD has said is, oh, well, the rules may or may not apply to you. Well, we are two weeks out from this law coming into effect and we still have no detail about who the new tax rules will include and who they won't include. We literally don't even have a bill in Parliament. So my number one prediction, Jerry, is that there will be mass confusion, that there will be accountants across the country making a lot of money and tax lawyers across the country making a lot of money. So just so we're clear on how it works, at the moment, uh, if you own a, a retail shop, uh, and you um, borrow money to buy in stock, the cost of that borrowing is a deductible expense. Yes, for every business but, in New Zealand. It, but if you're a landlord and you borrow money to uh, invest in a property that you are going to rent out, the de- you cannot deduct the cost of that money from uh, the, the, um, the operation, That's the right. overall operation. So That's in other right. words, you're being asked... In, in what is a very capital-intensive uh, undertaking to effectively subsidise rents. Yeah, that's right. And, of course, one of the impacts of this is that you may be less likely uh, to borrow for that property. So, again, one of the things that officials warned the government is one way people might respond to this is just deferring maintenance and investment. So, again, who pays for that? Well, the tenant pays for that because a landlord who might otherwise have been able to deduct the cost of their interest might put more on their mortgage so they can put in new windows or fix up the painting. Well, now they're going to be far more reluctant to do that. There are so many other aspects we could talk about. Yes. Uh, we didn't cover the uh, the bright line test, which I think is the dumbest thing that's ever been brought in. Um, if, you know, just so people know, uh, in the last 12 months, the average house price, according to James Shaw, who spoke about it in Parliament uh, just recently, uh, has risen by about $200,000. Mm. So if you were to have bought a house 12 months ago and you sell it now and you've got that $200,000 sitting in there, uh, you pay 40% maximum, maximum 40% of that in bright line tax, mm. and you walk away with the rest as clear profit. Mm. I mean, it's crazy. It, all it's done is uh, uh, feed that uh, fire in the market. And anybody that thinks that tax is a way to uh, uh, equalise prosperity is, is completely deluded. Mm. In the end, 
we, it's pretty simple. We actually need to build more houses so that we move from a situation where potential buyers are competing against huge amounts of people uh, for a home to a situation where people selling a home uh, actually need to make sure it's priced competitively and where landlords are competing for tenants. Until we get to that level where we've really boosted supply, we will continue to see these issues. Nicola Willis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for joining us in the Back River Politics today. Thank you.